The Seahawks are back, baby. Or are we getting ahead of ourselves? Either way, Seattle finds themselves in the middle of the playoff picture with three games to go after an incredible win over the Eagles on Monday night. The Ringers football savant and Philly fan Ben Solak joins us to break it all down. Let's light him up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my inauspicious producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? We are doing great, Jackson. Yeah. That was a much easier game to stomach than the previous four. Let me tell you. The Needed Seahawks it, man. Back Needed up, it. Back up. Yeah, we are so back, man. <laughs> How are you feeling? Ah, I'm good, man. I mean, the thing is, is like, I feel like the Seahawks played a good game. I don't feel like they played a great game, but at the end of the day, it's wins versus losses. Like, when we look back on this season, two, three years, we're going to look at how many games the Seahawks won, and they won a huge one on Monday night. And, you know, you and I were talking about this off air, but like, we're glad that the game got flexed because it added to that moment. Like had they lost on Monday night. Okay. They lost primetime games like three times in the last month already is what it is. But to get that win in that moment and to have drew lock have that moment. Super cool to see. It's, Still unfathomable, the drive that he put together after playing like duty for the first three and honestly most of four quarters, right? Like he was, <laughs> right. it was, I was watching the game with a friend who's an Eagles fan. And when the game started and we were blindsided with number two under center, uh, I turned to him and I was like, I'm going to set the over under for first down Seattle achieves in this game at 10. Like I, I, I was expecting mm-hmm. nothing. I had zero mm-hmm. expectations. And he said to me, nothing is off the table with this Eagles defense. <laughs> and he was right. He was right. Shouts to Haas. But um, yeah, man, I, I still can't believe they pulled that off. I will say, I will say, as somebody who has been uh, a fervent defender and supporter of Julian Love from the start, yeah, oh, get out of here. What an amazing night for me. Oh I have my been, gosh. I have There's no room left on the bandwagon for you, pal. Can't sit here. Support from the beginning. We can, you know, we can check with the uh, with our source, <laughs> Stacy Ross. She can corroborate that report, believe me. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. I remember our Julian Love conversations, man. Hey, that's but, NFC uh, Defensive uh, Player of the Week, Julian Love to you. That's bro. right. That's right. I've been standing on that from the beginning. Well, maybe not defensive player of the week, (laughs) but I thought it was good. And, and, you know, honestly, man, this is something I tweeted. I I might walk it back a little bit because it still does seem like the team holds Jamal Adams in high regard. I just don't know. I, I said, I don't know how you put him back on the field after that game from Julian Love. But I do think that sells short what Jamal Adams does add. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this comes back to the conversation that we've had, you know, about Jimmy Graham or these or Percy Harvin, these big trades that they're making when the coaching staff doesn't necessarily have a plan how to deploy yeah. this this weapon uh, in an optimal way. And you know, there Jamal Adams does a lot well, and you know, maybe asking him to do the things that Julian Love did on Monday night would not have been a great 
execution of his skill set because I don't think he's making either of those picks necessarily. But that isn't Almost to say that certainly. he's not an amazing player in his own right and he can wreak havoc up front. He is a weapon, and I, I do think we need to give him a little leeway as well because of the recovery from the the injury that he's still been dealing with. Like I don't think that there might have been a little bit extra uh, with leaving him inactive for this game based on the way that he has you know conducted himself sure. and like protected the team the last couple few weeks um but i do not doubt that he is going through it physically i'm sure that 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 knee is hurting him. yeah yeah man. What, what are your thoughts on on drew lock vis-a-vis geno smith <laughs> come on man <laughs> I'm gonna like entertain that. I it, <laughs> we'll get into this. We'll get into this with Ben, but uh, yeah, man, Gino, Gino's the guy, and Drew acknowledged that Gino's the guy. This was like in the in the press conference where Brock Purdy was asked if he was the MVP. He's like, no, 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 no. It's it's CMC, right? Drew Locke was yep. saying like, Gino, Gino is the guy. I'm very happy to have had my moment here, and like he was instrumental in allowing me to execute to the degree that I did, but. It's Gino's team. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. I'll tell you who was fired out was Pete Carroll. He was. He was. And I know you 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 understandably went in on Pete a little bit in the article this week. Uh I I did find it hilarious on the broadcast where, you know, they had like the the ESPN model, the fourth down model, and it would say like go on all of these, on all these um, you know, fourth and two, fourth and three, fourth right. and four. Um, and Joe Buck astutely pointed out on the broadcast. I don't think that model takes into account Drew Locke. <laughs> <laughs> the Drew Locke math is different than the Geno Smith math. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 fair, man. But you fired up after that game, man. That was like vintage Pete Carroll, and that and that's the thing, right? Like if Pete Carroll is going to be your coach. I'm I'm a big fan. People listening to the show heard me say a million times. You want to go faster? Put wind in your mainsail. I'm telling you, man. Vibes are high right now. Which is crazy because they were low a week ago. They were down further than it, that. That was one of the nadirs of this era of Seahawks football. Uh, and and you know we we'll we'll touch on this, but I think a lot of that has to do with the schedule that they've played over the last month plus. Yeah, for sure. But even so, four losses consecutively for the first time since since Pete's been in town. I, you and I were texting before this game about how seven and ten was a realistic possibility. <laughs> I know it, and now we're I talking about how ten and seven is is looking like it. the the potential outcome here. So, you know, one one drive, one drive for an one entire drive, season. Man, that's crazy. That's crazy. Well, I'll tell you what, man, it is just great to have some good mojo back in the building after the most brutal month and a half in the last decade of Seahawks football. We'll learn more about what that means with our guests, but first. If you're listening or watching right now, it's hopefully because you like the show. And if you like the show, there are a few ways you can support it. If you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating. And if you're feeling super supportive, a quick review as well. You can do that right now. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll find full video episodes, entertaining clips, and the audio reads of every Cigar Thoughts article after each game this season. This is probably the best way to help the show grow, And growth is going to enable us to bring more of our football discourse your way. So we are grateful for the few seconds it takes to like and subscribe. We are also thrilled to announce our awesome partnership with Westland Distillery in Seattle, which, if you've been listening to this show the last number of weeks, you know is my favorite local whiskey maker. And if you're watching on YouTube, 
you'll see me enjoying a glass of their single cask barrel number 6554, which it's got the smooth sipping experience, tons of flavor, huge fan. Thing is, Westland is an American single malt whiskey distillery in the Soto neighborhood of Seattle. Their tasting room and bar are open to the public. They serve whiskey, cocktails, small bites. They got a bottle shop on site featuring distillery exclusive releases and more. They're located on 2931 First Avenue, a little over a mile south of Lumen Field. And their Garyana number eight was just named the number three whiskey in the entire world by Whiskey Advocate. Needless to say, I'm stoked to be working with them. And one of the reasons I love their whiskeys, y'all know this, is that they're excellent pairings with a good cigar. Speaking of, many of you know, we do have our own special release of cigars that you can purchase at a terrific price as a listener of the show. Until now, you've been able to order your own bundle of 10 for just $169, which is less than half of what this blend sells for in cigars on the open market. But because it's the holiday season, we are making them available for just $149. That's right, only 149 bucks. We partnered with one of the most prestigious cigar manufacturers in the world to release these official Cigar Thought cigars, which you can order directly from CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Just follow the link on the show page to get these easy-to-smoke stogies rolled with 13-year-aged premium Dominican tobacco leaf, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, and we'll send you the details directly. And the cigars, they come with a Bevita humidification pack and a Mylar storage bag to make sure they stay fresh, whether you have a humidor or not. All right, man, let's talk some Hawks. Let's do it. The Pete Carroll Seahawks have been the it's so over, we're so back meme personified for years now. And Mike, I don't know if it's ever felt as it's so over as it did through most of Monday night's game against the Eagles. But brother, we are so back. We are so back. (laughs) Seattle escaped with a stunning 2017 win on the back of an even more stunning game-winning drive from Drew Locke. The win gets the Seahawks back to 500 and clears the path to the playoffs over the last three games of the season. Joining us to talk about the game, what it means, and the state of the NFC is one of the smartest people you could ever hope to talk ball with. We had his partner, Shiel Kapadia, with us last week, so we're doubling up on the Philly vibes. He's an NFL writer, co-host of the Ringer NFL show, and a reeling Eagles fan. (laughs) He's making his second appearance on the show, and we're stoked to have him back. He is Ben Solak. Ben, thanks for making the time. Hey, I appreciate it, Jackson. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, you bet, man. Look, let's just jump right in with initial impressions from Monday. You know, one of the things that I appreciate most about your analysis is this strict adherence to calling things as you see them, whether they support a narrative or not. But you're still a human being with a favorite football team, and that team just lost a thriller to Drew Locke. Talk to me about your thoughts as you watch that game and some immediate takeaways. Yeah, it's actually a pretty way to ask that question because I like... I tend not to feel Eagles losses to like even a 10th of the degree that I used to. Right. It's Mm -hmm. just like back when you're just like a total fan, like every loss is like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. How could they lose? And when you like start to analyze the game, like, all right, sometimes teams lose, like you're banged up. It's been a long month. Like you lose a game, like whatever you can recover. This one, I was like, this one hit me. I was, dude, I lost to Drew Locke on national television. Come (laughs) on. And I was, the entire time, uh, like luck, he hits the throw. He puts the backpack on. He's doing the backpack. Gino's doing the backpack. He get, get uh, interview with with uh, was it Lisa Salter's interview to match the game. 
Uh, yeah, man. Wonderful interview. I love my guys so much. I love my team so much. I'm so happy. This means the world to me. Get to the post-game press conference. Gino's the unsung hero of the culture. Oh, it's amazing. We love him so much here. And I'm just like the penguin meme. Where I'm like, well, now I'm not going to enjoy it. Like I was just the one guy not happy for Drew Locke. So, yeah, it was uh, uh, coming off the game. Like I think for Eagles fans, it was, okay, we lost to the Niners by a lot, and that sucked. Then we lost to the Cowboys by a lot, and that sucked. But hey, like it can be okay because those are really good teams. Like we have some issues, and like let's just write the ship. Let's have a really strong end of December, last four weeks, and we'll go to the playoffs and we'll get one of those two teams again. And we'll try to beat them. Once you lose to the Seahawks and Drew Lock, you're kind of like, oh wait, never mind. We might just be like bad. Which is not to say the Seahawks are bad. It's just to say that you, as an Eagles fan, have to recalibrate your expectations for the team when they're capable of dropping games like this. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's it's the timing of things, right? If these two teams play in Week Four. And the exact same thing happens, you know, I, I don't know that it means as much, but the timing of the Eagles having lost two games in a row badly, the timing of the Seahawks having lost four games in a row, which makes a loss to Seattle in Seattle in primetime, which is just historically a really difficult thing to do, regardless of the situation. Seattle's primetime record under Pete Carroll is insane. They've won like 85% of their games, but because it's at this crossroads of these two losing streaks it's like well it's okay at least we'll beat seattle oh and geno smith's not starting okay all right we're going to be 11 and 3 we're going to be okay question for you do you think the seahawks did more to win this game or the eagles did more to lose it eagles did more to lose it i think i think seattle i think seattle did what's necessary to do in a game like this right uh especially like defensively i think they they played a very spirited effort and they were really good in the trenches, right? They made it a little bit tougher on the Eagles to run the football and hassle Jalen Hurts more. You saw them blitz, which they don't do a ton of to try to really stress him out. So I think generally defensively, they did a lot of like, all right, like we need to have a big day. No Devon Witherspoon, no Jamal Adams, backup quarterback is in. Like this is an important performance for us. And I thought they really stepped up to the plate. Offensively, this was not a great day for Seattle until that final drive. And really like, thank you for the first three and a half quarters. You're kind of like, Hey, Did anybody tell them that the Eagles can't cover? Like, just throw it far down the field. Like, they got Darius Slays out. Gene Fabry is old. They got rookies and and second-year players without a lot of experience playing corner. you got to stress these guys. They didn't really get to that until the end of the game. Though they were certainly running the ball well. Like, I don't fault them for saying, hey, we're going to kind of take this ball out of Drew Locke's hands. We're going to let Kenneth Walker win this game for us. And Walker was was moving the ball down the field, right? Like, they, they were running the football well, so I'll give them that. But they started to really attack the, the outside, attack the isolation. James Bradbury, the heavy target for that entire uh, two-minute drive. That that felt like they were a little bit late to that, late to the, the upkeep there. But in general, I think that the Eagles were the, were the team that had multiple opportunities in the second half to establish a two-score lead, to put the Seahawks in like a clear yes. pass environment for multiple drives and like really dial up the pass rush and wait for the big Drew Lock error. And they they didn't put that nail in the coffin, didn't put that nail in the coffin, didn't, no, 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 no. And then they gave the Seahawks one too many lives. And eventually, like a Pete Carroll coach team, like, like, once Pete wasted the timeouts in the second half, I was like, oh, we're losing for sure. Because, like, once Pete, <laughs> once Pete tanks a second half timeout and the entire internet, internet is furious with him, in 100% of those games, the Seahawks have a chance to win it late. Like, it always yeah. happens that he, yep. he escapes scot-free. And so they just gave the Seahawks one many chances in the second half. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that the Seahawks offense, at least their pass offense, was really underwhelming for mm-hmm. three and a half quarters, honestly, for 58 minutes. Yeah. You know, it's anytime you have a backup quarterback come in and win a game like that, it's it's going to reignite the discourse. But, you know, Drew Locke was four of six for 92 yards and a touchdown on the last drive. Heroic stuff, right? Just find yeah. James Bradbury, whoever he's covering, throw it to that dude. 
But Seattle had 98 net passing yards on 30 dropbacks before that. Against, to your point, an Eagles team that has been really bad against the pass for most of this season. Now, I know that you spend a lot of time breaking down and ranking quarterback play. So let me ask you this. Do you think Drew Locke or Geno Smith is the better QB right now? And how big is the difference between them, if any? Geno, it's not close. Uh, uh, Drew's got a live arm, and that's fun. And I think that Drew is, is probably over his time sitting in Seattle and being behind a quarterback like Geno, who, like, Geno went through a similar arc to what Drew did, right? Second-round pick, and he's going to be the starter, and then, you know, kind of fell flat on his face and had to take a backup job. Like, I think that being behind Geno is going to benefit him. And I think Shane Waldron is generally a good offensive designer and a good offensive coach. I believe Waldron is generally a net positive. Uh, I think that experience will be good for Locke. I think that he will uh, learn how to become a better quarterback. But in general right now, Locke is just big man throw far. Like, that's just like, not even that big man, just big arm man throw far. Yeah. Like, that, that, that's pretty much what he's got at, at this stage. Gino spent the entire first half of the season mitigating some of the worst offensive line issues that existed in the league and, like, yes. generally keeping the offense's head above water. Certainly it wasn't as good as it was last year, but, like, when you've got nine offensive line combinations in eight games or whatever it was, like, there are very few offenses in the league that endure that, and the Seahawks weren't one of them. And so, Geno's the better quarterback. It's 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 a comfortable margin. I think Geno's like you know a clear above average starting quarterback in the league. He's a clear top sixteen guy. Drew is probably a top sixteen backup, yeah. which is nice. Um, but that, there's still like you know a pretty big delta there. Yeah, you know, and and I'm glad you said I. You know, I don't know if you have Geno ranked like in a specific spot, but you know, we were talking with Shield last week, and I kind of had him in that. 12 ish range, just not, not in terms of ceiling. You know, if I'm starting a franchise, there's more than 12 guys I'm taking over Gino, but in terms of just how they've played, how league quarterbacks have played since Gino took over as a starter in Seattle, he's kind of, yeah, he's, he's not top tier. He's not second tier, but he's right there after that. I think. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I was, you know, someone, you know, I think it was justice Mosqueda of Acme packing company. Um, just put out a, a tweet a few weeks ago. Like it was after like the really good Jordan Love games, where it was basically just like, all right, rank these quarterbacks. And it was like Stafford and Love and Geno and Purdy and Tua, and just like all the bait, like every bait quarterback there is to rank. It was all one bait. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, I'll do this. Whatever. Who cares? I'll piss people off today. Um, there can't possibly be any blowback to this yeah. exercise. And I had Geno above like Purdy and Tua, and it you know pissing people off. But, but right. functionally, he plays quarterback at a, at a more challenging level, more uh, consistently than, than than those guys do. Uh, and so yeah, Geno to me like you you you're in that that that. There's that first tier of pocket passers and like Mahomes and, and and Dak who are unbelievable. There's that second tier of pocket passers, which is like Stafford and in my opinion, CJ Stroud's up there and like Trevor Lawrence is still up there. Like that that tier kind of ends your top ten. And those are guys who can just sit in the back and demolish you for four quarters. At his peak, Gino looks like that. More consistently, he, he's, he's not at that level, which puts him kind of sure. in that, that third tier of pocket passers, which I'm, I'm using that framework of pocket passers because, like, you put Gino up against somebody like Kyler. Gino's clearly a better thrower of the football like in terms of snap to snap, like where he throws it, how he chooses to throw it, when he throws it, accuracy, everything. But what Kyler brings athletically probably puts him above Gino for me just because of what yep. that allows you to do offensively. But when we're talking about, like, how guys operate from the pocket, Gino's, like, up there in, like, the very clear, solid starter tier. Uh the ceiling is a weird thing to figure out with him because he's just a lot older than you expect guys to be when they have this level of experience and you kind of don't know yeah. how much better he's going to get, but still like very clearly can win playoff games with the caliber of quarterback, Geno Smith. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about Gino with regard to his ceiling is yeah, he, he is older, but he's not somewhat he's, he's mobile enough. He's good at maneuvering the pocket and he can 
convert a third and four with his legs, you know, once every couple of games, he's, he's mobile enough, but he doesn't win because of his mobility to your point in contrasting him with Kyler. And he doesn't have the mileage of most quarterbacks, his age, he hasn't taken the hits. He hasn't suffered the injuries. And so, you know, now I don't know that he's going to be Seattle's quarterback beyond say 2024, but just Gino, the player remove the Seahawks context. I think there's a case to be made that he can continue to improve or at least sustain where he's at for a while longer because the things his success is predicated on are not the types of things that most quarterbacks at his age, you know, they're worrying about those things wearing down and and he really isn't. Yeah. I, and then by the same token, usually guys that are his age have seen so much that they're really True. good at, at, at steadying out the ebbs and the flows, like the peaks and the valleys. Right. I like Kirk cousins is always the helpful guy for me in this, in this metaphor where it's like, we weren't Love wrong Kirk. about Kirk in the mid 2010s when the like, Kirk was like productive in Washington and we were all like, that's fake. Like we were right. That was fake. Now it's real. And the reason why it's real now is because he's started for eight years. And so once you once you've seen 196 games worth of data, you just know what you can and can't do, right? You 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 enter that veteran stage. And so for Gino, it's it, I think that for a quarterback in his 30s, he's like obviously gonna be on a, a extended contract, like on a decently sized deal. There's going to be more peaks and valleys than you would expect from a quarterback of his age because he doesn't have the experience, right? That's just the nature yeah. of like how many reps do you see, and so that's why like Seattle's in it, it's weird territory. Like I'm, I'm sure there are examples of like quarterbacks who in that in this stage in their career with this level of experience, this long in the league, like you know get the opportunity to start a little bit. Like I think mean, like. We've seen Ryan Fitzpatrick win starting jobs in his 30s, but there's not sure. a lot of data on guys who are this age with this experience profile taking a starting job. And so we don't really know which direction the Geno Smith ship is going to head and kind of prognosticate, but there's not a lot to, to base it off of. And so I think you're going to see like higher peaks and lower values for Geno than you'd expect for a quarterback in his 30s. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with all of that. And I want to throw the listeners some red meat here too uh, with regards to Drew Locke. I unintentionally kind of fed the debate after the win between Gino and Drew Locke. I didn't mean to. The point I was trying to make is that we can appreciate what Drew Locke did on that final drive without forgetting how he played on the first 11 drives. Yeah, We can, we can revel in that moment and not take that away from Drew Locke. He's going to be able to cherish that drive on Monday night football for the rest of his life. But him doing that isn't an indictment of the starting quarterback, especially when that starting quarterback has three game winning drives already this season, you know? So it's the, the thing that I want to try and get across is like, I'm not hating on drew lock. I just think Geno Smith is the better quarterback. That doesn't take away from what drew lock did in the moment. He was awesome when he needed to be awesome. Yeah. And, and also like if, if a younger QB two were in a position to supplant a QB one, you can feel that from like a locker room perspective and from a culture perspective and from a team management perspective. And for Seattle, it's like Gino is thrilled for Drew Locke. Drew Locke is very appreciative of Gino. And also Pete Carroll immediately said that Gino's the quarterback. Yeah, right. Like, like they just got, like, you know, there's not a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the typical like kind of uh, uh, smoke that comes with the fire of like, oh, we might actually put a young guy out there. And that goes to, to managing the locker room and managing culture, right? Because certainly I think there's been periods of time this season where like, People in the locker room probably been frustrated with you know right like wide receivers. Sure, DK gets frustrated with everybody. Like you, this is going to happen, and so you have to be able to manage 
that environment. We have a QB1, you have a QB2, and you've given the QB2, QB1 reps before, right? Like the beginning of last season. You got to be able to just handle that. Say like competition and everybody's going to compete and we're going to go with the best guys and like follow through with it. And like a lot of coaches can't do that and Pete can. And so that's why Drew can have the game that he does with Gino being as supportive as he is and, and everybody being so happy for him. And then also, yeah, but you're not the starter. Like good job. And now Gino's back in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. And like, <laughs> I mean... Even here, well, here's here's the other thing. You got a team that's seven and seven, right in the thick of trying to get to the playoffs. You're in the process of building this post Russell Wilson era, new vibes, new culture, all of that stuff. You know, a lot of young players on this team. And if you go to Drew Locke over a healthy Geno Smith, now DK Metcalf is getting asked about that after every practice. Bobby Wagner is getting asked about that after every practice. Pete Carroll's getting asked about that after every practice. It becomes a huge distraction. So to me, I think it's one of those things where if you're going to remove an incumbent in the middle of a playoff race, the case has to be really, really strong that there's either something wrong with the starter like you have in Pittsburgh or something like that, or you know this backup is really killing it. And I just, I just don't think either of those things are the case. And to the point, even on this final drive, like again, Drew Locke, man, God bless you. What a moment. That was a highlight of the season for someone who follows the Seahawks fan, you know, follows the Seahawks. But like that first completion that DK Metcalf had to dive for, that was a bad throw. Yeah. If he hits him in stride, he had like five yards of separation. I think the the corner was kind of playing like a soft zone. He runs the slant. The safeties were like 20 yards away from each other. DK full speed has a decent chance of just splitting that and scoring. And maybe that would have been the worst thing <laughs> because it would give the Eagles chance to come back in and win the game. But then on the next one, that incredible one-handed diving catch that DK made, he stole that ball from Bradbury. That ball was yeah. thrown right to James Bradbury and DK potted away from him. So, you know, an awesome moment, but like, I just, my goal is that we can just try and see these things as accurately as we can and and to me, there's there's no real defense, but you know, or yeah. no, you know, no no real uh, argument for Drew Lock over a healthy Geno Smith moving forward. Yeah, you don't want to live on third and ten where we scored thirteen points in three and a half quarters. Prayer to DK Metcalf. That's not where you want to be. <laughs> hey, right. when you're converting eighty percent of your third and ten pluses, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, guess what? You don't, you don't, get, the, don't, you don't get to play the Eagles defense every week, there, Mike. The guy. James Bradbury offense. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah we had right. it was funny. We had Shield on last week. And we were like, how did the Seahawks win this game? And he's like, the Eagles third down defense sucks. If they convert third downs, they can win. It's it's historically bad. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so wild because you guys were so good on third down last year. It's a chaotic down. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a old defense. They're just old and slow and in a league where everyone is young and fast. Very worrisome. Totally, totally. And, and you know, uh, last thing uh, I want to say for moving on from the quarterbacks is, you know, I'm, I'm harping on Drew Locke because I think he made two not great throws at the start of the drive. His last two completions were awesome. That jump ball to DK was perfectly placed and Metcalf made a great play on it. And his throw to JSN was just perfect. That was like, that was like the throw every young quarterback imagines, you know, a 40 yard game winner to the back corner of the end zone, hitting your guy in stride. Um, you know, so so credit to him there. Now, on the other side of the ball, for both teams, right? Seattle's defense, Philly's offense, the Eagles came out and looked the way that I think a lot of people expected them to look. They had a 15-play touchdown drive, and then two possessions later, they had a 16-play field goal drive that 
would have been a touchdown if it wasn't for the weird Jason Kelsey false start call. But after that, the Seahawks only allowed seven points on the final seven drives and zero points on the final four. How much of that was Seattle playing really well and kind of coming together as defense? How much of it was Jalen Hurts playing despite looking like death warmed over? I think that some of it was the defense playing better and some of it, it was it them coming together. They did a, a better job stopping the run, I think, on those drives. Certainly the uh, not the final interception drive, but the penultimate drive where the Eagles got the ball, like six and a half minutes left, they're up by four. There's no team in the league, if you go look at like fourth quarter numbers, that's better at taking that drive and winning the game on that drive than the Eagles are. Like they Oh, just, yeah. They take all 40 seconds out of the clock, they run the football, they take the air out of the ball, and they just sit on it. And you get an, a good enough stop to get to third and seven, right, on first and ten or on second and seven, and put the Eagles in a pass situation, and you're able to win that situation, you're able to earn the ball back. So defensively, I think there were certainly things that Seattle did better. Um, Seattle did, I thought, a really nice job giving the Eagles interior offensive line some trouble, especially after that first couple of drives where the Eagles were just like, okay, we're going to run it directly at Bobby Wagner this entire game. Uh the Seahawks right. responded with, okay, well, we're going to make Sua Pettis life a living hell, and we're going to make it a lot harder for you to kind of get that done. I thought that was a good adjustment. But how did they do that? Tell, uh, tell the people listening exactly how they did that. They put Leonard Williams opposite him. <laughs> and nice. that's why they made the trade. Nice and easy. That's why they uh, made the trade. Works out great, doesn't it? Um, yeah, no, they 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 were more a lot more aggressive, I think, playing into the interior and let the, let the defensive line and the defensive interior dictate a lot more. And just muddies up the reads, makes the back slower in the backfield. You'll still see Swift then, like, you know, he'll break a tackle in the backfield and go run for five. But you're protecting Bobby that way a little bit more because the Eagles are just kind of going after him in the running game. Altogether, though, if you're if – you're, uh, when, when you think when you think about that second half and the Seahawks got their stops, the two, the two interceptions is what is the the difference maker there, right? Because you're in scoring range on one of them, and you're going to get into field goal range on the other one, right? At least that's the plan. Uh, yeah. And I mean, Julian Love just lights out football. Uh, the the first yeah. thing, was a, tr- a tremendous coverage, yeah. tremendous catch, and then the second one is like I like I, you didn't even deserve to make that catch. You just get, you get you get your foot stopped by uh, who was it? Was it uh, was it Reek that was on? Uh, I can't remember who the corner was, but. It, I think it was, was Trey, Trey Brown. Yeah, so bumps into Trey and then gets the foot down. And you're like, all right, well, if you're going to make that catch, you're going to win the ball game. And so uh, it's that's just Julian Love is a nice little player. I was I was happy to see Seattle side. He had a he had a big night against Nick Sirianni, who he has long doubted. So kudos to him. Hey man, hundred percent of the games that Julian Love has an interception for the Seahawks, JSN has a game winning touchdown. <laughs> so if that's not causation, Stats. I don't know what is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, I exactly. think I think we have a strong enough sample size now to say that that one thing will equal the other moving forward. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, quickly to circle back to the Eagles' defense. Uh, like a day or so before game time, news came out that uh, Darius Slay would end up missing the game uh, after undergoing knee surgery. And at first, the thinking was, oh, after getting mollywopped by DK uh, a couple mm-hmm. of years back, you know, it was kind of a, I'm good. I don't need to. <laughs> I don't need to deal with this. I can delegate this to my my good buddy James over here. But then, right before the game, just a couple hours beforehand, I believe the news came down that Sean Desai was demoted from play calling duties and was replaced by one Matt Patricia. Never heard which of him. explains so much because Darius thought, oh yeah, I'd much rather undergo arthroscopic knee surgery than deal with this motherfucker again. Yeah. So can you kind of fill us in because Sean was in Seattle last year. He was when they hired Clint Hurt as the defensive coordinator, they brought Sean Desai in as a associate head coach and defensive assistant. Um and then he left after a year to come to Philly. And that clearly hasn't gone as well as people expected it to either. Give us the rundown on the Sean Desai experience in Philadelphia this year. 
Yeah, so uh, the Eagles were thrilled to have a new DC because Jonathan Gannon lost us the Super Bowl. Never forget. Uh, and so <laughs> Desai comes in, and Desai was uh, Desai was meant to be like a Vic Fangio castoff, right? So the Eagles had Vic in the building. Well, that was the story when Seattle brought him in too. Yeah, so it's, yeah, Eagles had Vic in the building last year, right? He was the senior defensive assistant for them. He's from Eastern Pennsylvania, uh, and they wanted. Vic and then the Dolphins put a big bag in Vic's lap and Vic left for warmer weather uh, and so the Eagles kind of said all right well well we started to fangioify this offense last year that was or, excuse me this defense last year that was the big change from year one year two to John Gannon uh, so let's keep that running we'll bring in Sean Desai and I'll, they 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 did that they fangioified the defense and altogether, like I don't think there were like any things that Desai did schematically that were egregious. I don't like think that like uh, certainly I think that they need more coverage rotation and more blitzes, and they probably need to do more chaotic stuff and like better protect their linebackers and their safeties. Like that's all there, but in general, I wasn't that like Desai walked in and ruined a good scheme. The Eagles had like functional linebackers last year, and now they have none. Like they just have zero guys you can play. Right? TJ Man, Shaquille Leonard, Kaiser White's gone. Yeah, Shaq and Shaq, and Shaq can't run right now. Uh, yeah, and Nick Morrow, who Desai knew from Chicago, and like Chicago let him walk for pennies. Uh, Nicobe Dean, who's fine when he's out there, but he can't stay healthy. Zach Cunningham, who was cut by the Texans, was cut by the Titans. Like they brought a Miles Jack after he was cut by the Steelers, and then Miles Jack retired, and then he unretired to rejoin the Steelers. Like, it's just like, they, they, did, they didn't have, they don't have backers. And so, they, it's very challenging for them to play zone, because you just attack the middle of the field. And then, the other issue was that the Eagles really wanted to resign Chauncey Garner-Johnson, like, that was their plan. And Chauncey wanted a huge deal, and they didn't have the money to give him a huge deal, so he left. And once he left, they were like, all right, well, we'll just resign Darius Slay and James Bradbury, right? Because both those guys are free agents. It turns out re-signing both of your over 30 corners to big deals is like bad. Because now you <laughs> you that that's where the money is. You need those guys to win their matchups. And Slay has been like fine this year. He's not been as good as he was previously. He's been he's been okay. Bradbury's been a mess this year. He's been real tough. Is uh athletically not capable of sticking with NFL receivers. He's too old, right? He's lost, yeah. lost the juice. And so he just guesses on everything, right? You, after the game, he was like, yeah, I was trying to be aggressive. What, what he's not saying in that quote after the Seahawks game is, I've been trying to be aggressive all year. Like, all I do is jump routes. All I do is try to anticipate. Because he can't get to the spot on time if he reads it out. So he has to, like, you know, be a veteran, be wily, and kind of read out the play. He remind, make, make totally. Guess. He reminds me of late career D'Angelo Hall that way. Yeah. And so you... Right now, you have all the monies on on those two two guys at corner, and neither one of them you can actually leave out there in man coverage or feel good about it. And so you're just at a point where, like, personnel-wise, Desai was put into a tricky spot. Now, what Desai failed to do is say, okay, well, I'm just going to sell out for pass rush then. I'm just going to sell out for pressure. And he, and and because they run Fangio-y fronts, uh, they don't unlock the pass rush and let it just kind of like eat as much as John Gannon used to where Gannon was like four of you go I, I'll figure out the back seven they play him a little slower and they play more five-man fronts and they play more Jordan Davis and you know run defense and Hassan Reddick in coverage and whatever and so Desai probably needed to just swallow the pill and be like all right we're gonna live and die by our, our, our front four and our pass rush and that's where I really like the absence has been this year is the pass rush is just so much worse than it should be with the amount of talent they have invested in it and so the theory with Patricia is like okay I'm just gonna play cover one and we're just going to let the pass rush eat, and we're going to try to press up to the front, disrupt for long enough for the pass rush to get home. Which, like, sure, but if the cost of that is Matt Patricia's your defensive coordinator, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it doesn't feel, it feels awful. <laughs> hey, all right, last question with the with the Eagles defense, because you're talking about how that D-line that was so dominant, like, historically dominant last year, 
has been a lot, <laughs> a lot less toothy this season. Yeah. Y'all drafted the one that got away for pretty, you know, fans of pretty much My every son. team in the top 10, right? Like, you know, I, I was happy with the Devin Witherspoon pick. I still am. Um, but Jalen Carter somehow fell to you guys and he got off to an awesome start this season. We had Sheila on last week and he was talking about, he hadn't had a quarterback hit in four games. He was pretty quiet in this one outside of that sack. He did have a sack that also was like, <laughs> could have been called, you know, illegal contact to the head type of thing. But <clears throat> where are you, where are Philadelphia Eagles fans at with Jalen Carter? Now that, you know, we're, we're basically getting into that time of the season for rookies where they're playing more games than they've ever played before. Yeah. Carter is still top five in the league and been pressure rate from defensive tackle. Yeah. He's still oh, he's so dominant the first two months from defensive tackle. Yeah, he was on a. The thing was this: like he to start the season, he was on a tear that would have been the best defensive tackle rookie season in history, and mm-hmm. then that stopped. It's so now it's like he's underperforming. He's not underperforming. He was awesome. He is, he is their most impactful pass rusher from the interior, which includes Fletcher Cox, uh, and he's good for at least two or three plays a game where he decides to beat the guard in front of him and then the play ends for the offense independent of what the other 10 players on the field did, right? Like he's yep. he, he's able to win so quick and so emphatically like on that sack of block where it's just like, all right, doesn't matter who you got open, doesn't matter what the concept is, like I'm in your lap now, good night, the game, the play is over. Uh, and so that skill that he brings, right? That, that, that takeover ability, uh, that hasn't gone away. Some of the insane numbers have, but like that's the nature of playing defensive tackle. Like Donald, Aaron Donald ruined our thoughts of how defensive tackle works. Yeah, he has, totally. Yeah, because Donald has like Aaron Donald has, ruined my life. Okay. Yeah, he has yeah. he has twelve sacks a season. So we're like, oh, that's what the elite defensive tackles do. No, man, like they don't. Like Indominus who had nine and then had three the next year. Like it's like it's just not a position where you actually get sacks. What you do is you disrupt and you make it easier for the edge rushers to get sacks. And that's so right. I've I've I feel very similar to it now about Carter as I felt to start with Carter. After six weeks of Carter, I was like, oh, the Eagles have the greatest player in history. I no longer feel that way. But I still feel like, all right, the Eagles have one of the best defensive tackles in the league, and he's going to remain so for a while because just 310 pounds, 310-pound guys don't move like this. So if he's he's the man. He remains the man. All right. You're you're voting for Defensive Rookie of the Year tomorrow. Will Anderson, Devin Witherspoon, Jalen Carter, rank them. Did you say Carter, Witherspoon, and... Anderson, and if there Anderson. if there's someone else that you think belongs in that discussion, by all means, yeah, I would go Carter one. I probably Anderson two, Spoon three. It's very tough to get corners hard because it's yeah. he plays great, but the, the uh, stats aren't good at reflecting the quality of corner. But I put Wisman in two. I put Wisman in two. He just played so well, and it's really hard to play well at that position. And Will Anderson's also played great. There's nothing to take away from Will. I think if like if, if it's just me with my ballot and I get to do it off of like the film that I watch, Spoons, yeah. ridiculous, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so Seattle uh, Seattle didn't burn the number five overall pick by not taking Carter. No. Now you have to figure out what world you want to live in here with your corner rotation, who you want to play in the nickel and who you want to play in the outside, and how you want all that to go, and. If that makes Jamal Adams be the odd man out, it makes Jamal Adams be the odd man out. You have to kind of swallow the pill on what you did with that trade and with that contract, so on and so forth. But if you are if you spent five on Spoon, you have to maximize Spoon, which means that you got to play him on the outside and base. And then when you get to nickel, you, you should feel confident playing on the inside or outside independent of matchup, or excuse me, dependent on matchup. Like kind of what, what do we want to achieve? What do we need to stop here? Because like you just don't, 
it, he's you get you got Mike Hilton in terms of like play style and ability, but like yeah. inside of the body of like Darius Slay, like who can play on the outside, right? You you have a guy who can legit like just be a weekly problem solver for you because he can actually move inside and out versatility wise in a way that like he can. Deron Bland apparently can from the Cowboys this year, and like. I don't know who else can do this, man. Right. Like, it, it's a very hard thing to be able to do. So you have to be able to maximize him by like, running a defense for him. Yeah, and it, you know, it's the thing is, I, I was so sad he couldn't play in this game. I, w- I would have loved to have seen Witherspoon on the same field as Jalen Carter in this game. But like, I think that as fans, we tend to underestimate how difficult it is for these guys to play two different positions. And make no mistake, slot corner is a different position than playing boundary corner is. And the fact that he can do both does just, and the fact that he can do both, they moved him inside a month into his NFL career. Like his ability to do both those things is super encouraging. Uh, Ben, you mentioned earlier, uh, alluded to the Pete Carroll experience a little bit. I don't know if you saw his post-game speech. I don't know that I have ever seen Pete Carroll that fired up after a regular season game in my entire life. He's cussing. He's throwing his hat. He's doing all this stuff. When you look across the league, because I I personally thought his in-game management in that game was atrocious. He called timeouts on all three of their fourth down plays and didn't run a single like actual offensive snap after that. Um, I thought that he was slow to adjust on some things, all of this stuff, blah, blah. He wasted it. Not only did he waste a timeout on the fourth down, he gave Nick Sirianni a chance to challenge a play that turned into a sack. But the vibes, man. Vibes <laughs> you, <again>. look, <laughs> you look around the NFL, I mean, you don't got to give me an exact number, but estimate how many head coaches would you rather have than Pete Carroll, just for average NFL team? Uh, Shanahan, McDaniel, Harbaugh, Reed. That's probably it right now. Maybe, Tom may, a weird, Tom, Tom maybe a McVay? Weird spot. Oh, McVay. McVay for sure. Yeah, yeah McVay's okay. a fair five. Though McVay could also do for a crash course in game management. Uh, <laughs> not go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, like, there. And then, like, there's there's guys who I think that you like, you know, who are younger and hipper and doing, like, the new things. like And, and, and you think to yourself, okay, it, they can potentially round out and to have – what Pete, into having what Pete has right now in terms of like culture and locker room management and, and, and story and success and the ability to kind of ride, ship, ride the waves of things. But like, you know, you watch the Seahawks game against the Eagles and you're like, Pete, learn how to use your timeouts. This is so dumb. But then you remember that like for nine years, the entire Legion of Boom hated Russ and it worked. And you're like, okay, you know what? If you don't know how to use your timeouts, that's okay. We got to get you like a 24 year old intern who can just scream in your head like, don't! Don't use it. <laughs> That's but, what I've been saying. Yeah. I've been saying just have one dude whose job it is to tell you when to take timeouts yeah. and when to go for it on fourth down. It's their I, only job. You pay him 80 grand a year, and that's it. Who is Who owns the Seahawks? What's their family's name? Jody Allen right now. Paul Jody, Allen's sister. Jody Allen. I've always wanted to move to the Pacific Northwest. Okay? It's a beautiful area of the country. My best friend in the world <laughs> is in the base in Tacoma. I will take the 80 grand. I Pete and I get along great. Okay? We're <laughs> old guys. We like jokes. There's similar interests and vibes. <laughs> And I will. I'm on board. When and not use his timeouts. I would love it. I would be so nice. I live in a cabin in the woods, in the rain, in the mountains. I can't wait. Please, just to get him a child to tell him when to use the timeout. <laughs> um, but altogether, like Pete has something that's a lot more challenging to find under a rock in terms of like 
the way yeah. that he manages people and the way he believes in people. Like that's why he's so hyped about this game is because like this is a culture game. This is a we rally six and seven. We are backup quarterback in defensive leaders are out. Jamal Adams is wrong with us, but we still we rallied and we won it. Like that's this is what Pete lives for. And so absolutely Pete's top top eight, top quartile without question. Yeah. And and the thing that I think is so crazy about Pete and that, you know, every every week there's moments for honestly probably just about every NFL team where fans are like, I've had enough of this dude. Get me a new coach. The The thing about replacing Pete is maybe only, and you could speak to this maybe a little better than I can, but maybe only Belichick and Tomlin, maybe Harbaugh are as interwoven into the franchise's DNA the way that Pete Carroll is. Like if you replace Pete Carroll, you're not just replacing the guy that's calling things on Sunday. You are replacing the vice president of football operations, essentially the CEO of a $5 billion company who, you know, his, his personality is imbued through every level of that, that organization. And, you know, whenever that time comes, I just want fans to understand exactly what you're asking of the guy to come in. He's not just coming in to call plays on Sunday. Yeah. It's also really hard to, uh, you know, you don't replace Pete with a, with a guy and then have a, like a one year jump. Right, like okay, like analytics, we're gonna use our timeouts correctly. Yeah, but like the the entire organization used to be organized, spearheaded by Pete, and that that change takes time. Right, that's a whole like flush, wash, and redo sort of situation. It's not like hey, we had a bad guy, now we plug in a good guy, and like everything right. gets better. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and so if you're gonna make that change, you can't make it lightly because it's gonna cost your franchise a year or two for sure. And like it's probably gonna come with the quarterback change and with coaching changes and philosophy changes. Like like you said, Pete's interwoven with the DNA, and so. Yeah, it's, it's reasonable to be upset with Pete on a Sunday in the fall because there's times on a Sunday in the fall where Pete does something that is dumb. However, when you look at it, like you step out and you look at the graph of, of general Pete vibes over the course of a calendar year, yeah. he and, and, and John Schneider, like they have a good thing going. Like they generally draft good players and they sign good contracts and they make good trades and they manage players and they develop players. And like the grass is not greener in the other pastures. That doesn't happen at every place. No, man, I'm, I appreciate someone like you with an outside perspective saying that because that, that pretty clearly echoes echoes my thoughts. And I say this is someone who, in hindsight, was on the wrong side of the Russell Wilson-Pete Carroll divorce. You know, I, I was keep Russ, get Pete out of here. And, and you know, I've I've definitely eaten my spoonful of shit on that. I'm, I, I, I'm with you. I think he's kind of right in that 7-8 range in terms of, of quarterbacks or, or head coaches, you know, in terms of who I want leading my team. Now, look, I'm going to zoom out with you in a second here and talk about the NFC at large, because I think the NFC playoff picture is super interesting. But part of that is the fact that the Seahawks have a game against the Titans coming up this week. What should Seahawks fans who are watching this game be aware of when looking at this matchup? And what's Seattle's best plan of attack when it comes to beating the Titans? Yeah, so Tennessee is uh, uh, Will Levis, a quarterback. uh, Is he going to play this week? So I think they're gonna they're gonna try to play him. I think that the hope is and the expectation is that he plays. If it's not him, it's Tannehill, and that's honestly like weirder. Uh, I don't think that they're gonna do like Malik things. I think that Tannehill's healthy enough and back enough that they would play him. Uh, with the offense wise, they're gonna be underneath, underneath, underneath shot, run, 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 shot, underneath shot, screen shot. Like it's it, they're they're very polar in terms of how they throw the ball. Seattle's so really good at stopping explosives. You saw obviously like Love have a big part of that in the in the Eagles game. So the nature is just like don't lose your one-on-ones to DeAndre Hopkins. Keep safeties on top and make them inch the way down the field on you. Derrick Henry is not 
the threat that he once was. He's certainly still a handful to bring down, but he just doesn't break as many tackles, and he's not as dangerous in the open field. Henry had less than 15 scrimmage yards on over 20 touches last week, which is the first type of player in history has ever Saw done that, that ever. Uh, <laughs> so that's where you're at right Prayer, now. Prayers up for yeah. everyone that had Derrick Henry in week yeah. one of the fantasy playoffs. And then for uh, Tennessee's defense, I mean, it's very similar to the Eagles' defense in that their corners are not good and they're banged up. And, like, the uh, – that they, like the Eagles, have been a wide receiver one funnel team, a pass to the outside receivers funnel team uh, for much of the season. They're nasty up front. They're difficult to run the ball on. So this is a game where you want to be able to drop back and DK Tyler Lockett and Smith and Jigba make their money. Uh, and, if Lock, and if Lock's back there, I don't know if they're going to go for that just because obviously they, they showed against the Eagles that they wanted to be more run, more ball control, and a little bit safer. If Geno's back there, I imagine they let him off the leash a little bit and feel like they can beat the Titans that way. So I think they match up nicely into them because the receivers that they can put on the field. Uh, Geno's out there. I think passing game-wise, this could be a big day for them. And then defensively, they're good at stopping explosives in the pass game. And that's where, where Tennessee gets you. And so I generally like the matchup. I think if you're getting Tannehill or even if you're getting good Levis and they're getting time in the pocket and working over the middle of the field and you're asking Bobby to cover a lot, like I think that could put you into some trouble. I think you see some big cash to run in that regard. That, if anything, is going to give you a handful. And Vrabel's always a well-coached team, but in general, good matchup for the Seahawks. If you're the Titans, is this maybe more of a Tajay Spears game? I think every game is more of a Tajay Spears game. <laughs> the, more, the more the season goes on. I mean, Spears is like, they, 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 been trying right like they drafted Hassan Haskins in the fourth round a couple years ago to say oh like maybe like you know Derek Henry and then Henry was still good and Haskins wasn't that great so they do it again with Tajay Spears you kind of draft in day three guys so that way the coverage are ready when Henry starts to tail off and over the years you've seen Spears be really successful with them he's been dynamic and you've seen Henry struggle and so they're they're at a pretty decent snap share right now that's like pretty traditional 1a 1b stuff you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't think they're gonna fully flip it on its head and make Tajay the bell cow until like that day actually comes just out of respect for Henry and who he is and the threat that he presents. But in general, like Spears gets more than his fair share of the offense. Like he's, he's a big part of it. Yep. Yeah. No, he's been about a 50% snap share guy for a while now. Um, I, he, he honestly scares me a little bit more than Derek Henry does uh, going into this game. Now you got the Seahawks coming off of a Monday night game, a wild emotional win. Now they're going on the road, early kickoff West coast team heading to the East. This has all the makings Yep. of a trap game, right? Like this is, this is every ingredient that goes into a trap game. How likely th- they play this game 10 times under these exact same circumstances. How many games do the Seahawks win? Uh, the 10 games. How many games am I getting Levis in those 10 games? Mm, all of them. All of them. They'll win. They'll win eight out of the 10. And, and if it's can- Tannehill, they win fewer. They win like six or seven, right? Because Tannehill okay. is good. And that's the thing. It's like, we got to remember, like even before he went down, like Tannehill still is a solid player. He's old and he's banged up. And that's the issue with him. But when he's healthy, he's good. Uh, Tannehill, I, I like Tannehill. Yeah, Tannehill will punish you over the middle of the field, which is where Seattle's past defense is weak. And so uh, if it's Tannehill, I'd be feeling real, real, real itchy. Not great. Under the, uh, but I think that it'll be <laughs> Levis. I think they're going to try to make sure he goes. Uh, so they're trying to build him and bring him along. And that that's obviously a lot more of an uphill, downhill sort of a thing. That's got a lot more peaks and valleys to it. You saw them beat the Dolphins, though. You know what I'm saying? You, you have seen them get the, the, those 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 big peaks in the right moments, kind of like how the Seahawks did with Drew Locke there late against the Eagles and snatch a win. So you can't you can't sleep on a Titans team, certainly not on the road, certainly not in the short week. Like, this is a, one to be responsible for. But he tends to be all right in trap slots. Like, obviously, like, East Coast numbers aren't great because they are, they're never going to be for a West Coast team. But in general, he tends to be good in trap slots. Well, and Mike Vrabel's he he's a clinch boxer. 
right? He's not going to stand back at arm's length and trade haymakers with you. He's he's going to get in in the clinch and try and make this a body blows push win on win on the cards type of boxing match. Uh, you know, and and that's the thing. He's he wants to muddy up the game. I think Pete wants to muddy up the game, and. I think I think where Seattle gets in trouble in this game is if it's a 17 to 16 in the fourth quarter type of situation where it's like one great player, one mistake swings it. Uh, I I hope that Seattle plays big stack poker in this one yeah. and is aggressive early and then stays aggressive and tries to make it a two three score lead because I mean <laughs> what we saw in that Miami game was wild. It was fluky, right? It was like the first time in 700 games that a team had been down 14 with three minutes left and one. Um, but I I think that if Seattle can can play aggressive early, that's going to be their best shot because it's exactly what Vrabel doesn't want them to do. Yeah, no, the, you should be again Geno healthy. You should be able to be putting twenty four twenty seven on this defense, and that's the thing is you can you can run away from the Titans absolutely if you stay in the muck with them. The Titans win in the muck, right? Like that's that's always been been Vrabel, and so you you are equipped to outscore this team. You are equipped to put a lot on this defense because of the issues that they have at corner. You gotta be able to do it, and like even when the Dolphins did it, they didn't do it enough to to build the deficit they should. They're like the first team in history to lose when they're winning by fourteen in five and a half minutes. So like really, they should have been fine. But in general, if you build a big deficit, you're gonna outpace this Titans team. Hey, real real quick before we talk about the rest of the NFC, something I was thinking about when we were talking about Derrick Henry and Tyja Spears. Where a two part question: Where are you on the importance of a really good running back and to to the success of a team? And, you know, we've done a little bit of ranking so far this show. Where, where's Ken Walker for you? Yeah. Uh, running back matters less than quarterback, matters less than receiver, matters less than offensive tackle. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It means it matters less in those positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can get away with having a really good team with not having a great running back. Plenty of teams have done it. They've done, they've done it with, with committees. And they've done it with undrafted free agents. They've done it with veteran free agents. There's tons of different ways to do it. Good back helps. Ask the Niners. Again, people <laughs> It's the, not, the Brock the Brock Purdy record is the Christian McCaffrey record yeah, in disguise. Absolutely, like, I, I, you there are backs that are very meaningful in the league. Now with Walker, Walker's uh, if I get the Walker that I got against the Eagles, where like he's taking what's blocked for him and he's sticking to the plan. Like Walker's a dangerous guy. Walker's one of the more dangerous backs in the league. Walker's got some knucklehead to him, and I think that's yep. why you saw Charbonnet get picked. And then they kind of give you a you know, home run hitter and a doubles hitter, and you can kind of pace those guys based off of the game and the fronts you're getting and the way you want to run the football. And I think that that's to the Seahawks' benefit to have both those players. Should they have spent two second-round picks total to get those two players? Probably not. It's probably not the best usage of resource. Again, it goes back to your Pete Carroll complaints. In the aggregate, they got two good players with two second-round picks. And most teams get two not good players with two second-round picks. get one good player with second-round picks, right? So overall, like... You know, you say, all right, they didn't use the picks for high value, but they still got handy players. And now it's a matter of, of using them and maximizing them. Like Walker was an important part of that game for them. Like they they won that game in in, in Jacksonville and Jacob, a big part of it. Drew Lock, big part of it. Walker was also a big part of it because a lot of the, their scoring drives before the final drive were the result of Walker doing nice work against this Eagles this Eagles defense. And so Walker, to me, like I backs wise, like more consistently, he's like in the the. 15 to 11 range that he has like an actual top 10 guy play like a top 10 guy against the, the eagles though and so like if, if Charbonnet's is going to light a fire under him and he's going to be a more responsible runner that's good news for him good news for seattle yeah you know and and to your point about ken walker's impact on that game before the final drive walker had 61 percent of the seahawks yards from scrimmage like yeah. it it was him the charbonnet was just there for a breather it it was ken go go win this game because we got 
we put the bumpers down on the bowling alley for our quarterback. Yeah, no, you're very right. And like that's why it's nice to have the guy with the explosives to him because you're like, all right, if we're gonna be a run heavy team, like and, and he has the opportunity to spring one, we need a guy who can actually spring it. And you see that on the on the touchdown, right? Where he's making guys miss in space to create an angle to go score seven. Where if he's getting tackled, you know, standard running back play, and now it's first and goal from the nine. Well, now you've got Drew Locke problems, right? You have to you have to try to find a way to get in on four plays with the offense as it currently is built. So that's why you like a guy who can spring one because he, he gives you that 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 scoring potential. All right. Let's talk about this NFC playoff picture. The West is all sewn up. NFC North is about to be also. Everything else feels very much in flux. <clears throat> you know, the AFC has a proper playoff picture. You got eight and six teams who aren't sure if they're going to get in. NFC is just a giant casserole of silliness. So we got, you know, we got the NFC South in flux. We got the NFC East in flux. The wild card's a mess. Let's start in the NFC East, which all of a sudden no one seems to want to win. Tell me a little bit more about the vibes in Philadelphia right now and how likely is it that the Eagles defend their division title? Eagles win the next three games, they win the division. They're playing the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Giants. They should win the division because they if they win the next three, they win it, and they're playing the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Giants. They, you, should win, you should win the division. Okay, but what if Dallas goes 3-0 down the stretch? So what will happen is that it'll be um, head-to-head record, which is 1-1. It'll be a conference record, which is five and or division record, which is five and one. Conference record will be the same. Like shared opponents will be the same. It's gonna, it's wild. It goes like all the way down. It goes yeah, yeah. to it goes to margin of victory against shared opponents. And right now, the Eagles have the advantage there. Okay. So it, there's a chance. So they, get, they they need to win big, also, right? Like so they can't winning big would help. The main thing is they like the Cowboys. Cowboys can't beat the Dolphins like sixty to nine. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like like yeah. the, a game like that would legitimately tip the scales altogether. If the Eagles win their next three games. Independent of what Dallas does, they win the division okay. in most universes. There's a few where like the tiebreaker gets crazy, but we're down to like tiebreaker five between the Eagles and the Cowboys, which is fun. So the Eagles should win it. I'm, I'm less convinced than I, I was that they're going to beat the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Giants, <laughs> but they should beat the Giants, Cardinals, and the Giants and win the division. Sure, sure. Uh, I mentioned the NFC South. Every every season, there's just a goofy division where it's just like one of y'all's got to get in. It's it's the dragon meme with the three fierce dragons and the one <laughs> goofy one, right? All right. So you got the Bucks, Saints, Falcons are all there. The Bucks, I think, are technically the division leader at seven and seven right now. The Saints would be a wild card. Well, not a wild card team, but um, you know, they they lose that tiebreaker. You got the Falcons at six and eight. You have strong feelings about which of those teams is the best of the bunch? I think it's the Bucks, which I didn't think I would get here to the end of the season and be like, the Bucks, but I like what Dave Canales is doing. Is their OC obviously came from Seattle, their quarterbacks coach. Uh, Baker's playing well within himself. They got good weapons, right? The emergence of Rashad White has been real nice for them. I think the Bucks are, have improved offensively over the course of the season, where I believe in them a little bit more. Obviously, they just got to play Joe Barry defense, so they're peaking right now. But is Baker good? Is Baker good? No, but <laughs> he Baker is like the less you believe in him, the better he is. And so, uh-huh. like, his career cratered. It's like, oh, my gosh, like, trade like to the Panthers, traded, cut midseason, goes to the Rams, cut by the Rams. Like, this is horrible. And now he's just one year bridge quarterback for the Bucs. This is the worst ever been for Baker. So he was actually the strongest he's ever been. And now, <laughs> now people ask the bank, is Baker good? And they'd be like, nope, now now you're believing him. So he's, not, he's bad now, right? The power is kind of like the Derek Carr. The yeah. Derek Carr. But it's like, it's like, yeah, totally. it's like Peter With Pan, better like, vibes. He's yeah. Derek Carr with better vibes. In Peter Pan, you have to believe in the fairies in order to fly. Baker Mayfield's the opposite. You have to not believe in him in order for him to fly. Once you believe in him, he's back down to earth. 
<laughs> he needs to be hated. He needs to be powered by his haters. Uh, so overall, like, Baker's just in, in one of his, his, his you know, upswings right now. All together, though, um, they just have a lot of talent, right? They have a lot of talent left over from the, the Brady era. And so even though, like, defensively they aren't what they once were, they're still like Vita Vea and Shaq Barrett and Joe Tryon, Shayinka and Carlton Davis and Antoine Winfield and Levante David. Like, they still just got guys. And then offensively, it's the same thing. And so they, they scare me way more than the Saints, who are pitiful and are not worthy of my respect. And then the Falcons, who had a chance to be good, um, but blew it because they can't manage their team or develop their players. All right. Fair enough. All right. Let's let's get your feelings on this wildcard race because that's that's where it gets really interesting, I think. You know, it's essentially guaranteed that either Philly or Dallas will get the five seed. That is what it is. We'll see how that plays out. But after that, you got the Vikings, Rams, Seahawks, Saints, all at seven and seven. Packers, Falcons right behind them at six and eight. Only two of those teams are getting in. Which ones are you betting on? Yeah, I think the Rams are getting in. Uh, they're the scariest team to me. I think when when we've seen this offense, Stafford plus Kyron plus Puka plus Cooper, this is good. And, they, and their offensive Stafford line is, top five still. I don't think he's top five. I mean, and, and like if if the ranking is like how have they played over the last month? Yes, I think like overall, like just like injury concerns, like where he's at age wise, he's more in the six to ten range. But Stafford's a son of a gun. He's playing lights out football as of late. Uh, so they scare me the most. I think they're making it. They get the Saints on Thursday night. I think they're beating the Saints. Uh, so that's six seed. I don't trust the Packers. I don't trust the Vikings. Vikings have to play the Lions two in the next three weeks. I think they're going to lose those games. If they win them off of Brian Flores, holy smokes. Um, but I think they're going to lose those games. And so now you're sitting there with seven and seven Seahawks and and uh, uh, potentially seven and eight Saints, seven and eight Falcons, seven and eight Vikings. I think the Seahawks have a good shot of being the seven seed. I do. I think that they're, they're, they're the most likely after the Rams to make it. The fact that they're in the in the, the same division makes it tough. They kind of need the, the Packers and the Vikings to, to self-immolate and kind of eat each other up a little bit. So it might be just too difficult mathematically for them to make it. They're like 52% chance right now, though. So to me, like Rams and Seahawks is the most likely outcome. Rams and Vikings probably the second most likely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's the Rams, too. We, my, Mike and I are guilty of underselling the Rams. They just they turn that around. It's just amazing what a healthy Matthew Stafford can do, especially when you got Sean McVay throwing the ball. I swear every week Stafford is making throws that I'm just like, that is impossible. What he just did, when you, yeah. especially when you see like the camera view from behind the quarterback and these throws he makes with his shoulders tilted to the left hash and he throws like a 20-yard dig to the right, it's like that's an impossible throw. He's gaming, right? Like he's like, there's 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 playing quarterback and then there's like 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 gaming like it's just full trick shots just like watch this mom like you know clips for the 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 tiktok clips for the youtube shorts right like he's just it's it's 360 no scope nonsense he is just full on killing it and it's unbelievably fun to watch and then and then sean and and the rams offensive line handle the rest like that running game is working really well because of designs because the the quality of that group kyron williams good back that's a very complete offense and it's not an offense that i would like to play come playoff time you know, it's interesting if the Seahawks do get the seven seed, they're either going to play the Eagles, who they just beat, the Lions, who they beat, or the Cowboys, who they almost beat in Dallas. I mean, Seattle's not a pushover in the first round if they get in, right? No, absolutely not. Uh, I don't want to play anyone in the first round of the playoffs. I would like to get a five. <laughs> Please and thank you. Uh, no, the uh, I. Seahawks are, are, are a tough out because of the offensive firepower because of Pete. The Rams are a tough out because of the offensive firepower because of Pete. Yeah, Pete. Even, even the uh, uh, Vikings, right? We're like, Vikings, okay. Like, they're going to be playing Nick Mullins. You can't take them seriously. I don't want to play Brian Flores, right? There's a lot of, like, 
half bad teams in the NFC. Mm-hmm. Like the records aren't the same as they are in the AFC. But in general, all of them have teeth. All of them have something that I don't want to have to deal with. And so I don't think there's going to, like, I think the, the NFC South champion is going to be a lame duck. And then other than that, I think it's going to be teams that are headaches to, to manage. Well, it'll still be Eagles, Niners, Cowboys as three of the four remaining teams. Like, I still think that's the most likely outcome by far, but it's not a walk in the park to get there. Yeah, totally. You know, well, one of the things I really like about doing the show is I get people who are smarter than me on the show to tell me if I'm wrong. So tell me if I'm wrong. I think that, this, you know, it, the vibes have been so bad with Seattle losing five of six games uh, before before the Philly matchup. The thing that I've been saying is I think Seattle's a pretty good team that played a bunch of really good teams. And the fact that they lost to those really good teams doesn't mean they're not a pretty good team. Are the Seahawks a pretty good team? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, my, my power rankings that I most recently put out for the ringer is like we have to, we have to do the rankings every week. Yeah. Pretty sure I had Seattle 12. Mm-hmm. I might have, I might have bumped them up, I think, after the, uh, after the Eagles win. Yeah. The Seahawks 12. I, they're right next to the Rams for me. It's, it's like, Jaguars, Texans, Seahawks, Rams, Packers, Bengals. That's that's the family. Yeah. I think that's the a list of generally good teams. Uh, if you want to win a Super Bowl in the NFL, where like only one team gets to go from each conference and you have to win these best of ones, that you have to just be like an absolute world-ending threshing machine, which is like like where the Niners just like oh every player we pick is gonna hit. And, you know, don't worry about it. It's fine. Or the Ravens, where it's like our quarterback is different than all the other quarterbacks. Like you have to have some stuff like that. And that's why it's always very challenging to be just a good team because you can be a good team and also feel like there's no shot of making the Super Bowl. But that's the nature of the NFL. It's a hyper-competitive league. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the 49ers. Last question. Which team, entire NFL, has the best chance of keeping San Francisco from winning the Super Bowl? Dallas, right? I think that uh, they're, they've played the Niners the last three times. They've lost the last three times. They're really sick and tired of losing to the Niners. So I think, firstly, there's there's a, a history there. There's a fired-up nature there that, that's meaningful. Secondly, you, I actually think Dallas is going to get them. Like, AFC, you can't pick a team because, like, what if they don't make the Super Bowl? Like, the Cowboys are 100% going to run into the Niners at some point in the postseason, right? If the Niners are the one seed and the Cowboys are the five seed, Cowboys are pretty likely going to get the Niners in the divisional round. Uh, I think they match up a lot better than the last few games would indicate because if they can actually, like, be really fast and really physical defensively. They can tackle, they can pressure. Like that's the sort of thing that can really hassle the Niners when you actually tackle really well. They can do that. They haven't done it against the Niners yet, but I've seen them do it against other teams enough that I believe in it. Okay, I lied. I got one more question for you. Hey, man. The Seahawks appeared, you know, I don't, I don't know what your prediction for the Seahawks in 2022 was after trading Russell Wilson. I had them at seven wins. I did not see nine and a playoff berth coming, but they did that. And then I think they kind of fooled us a little bit by uh, leveraging a playoff, you know, an unexpected playoff appearance into a five and two start. And we started to think, okay, this is a team that's ready to compete with the big boys. It's it's clear they're not quite there yet. When you zoom out and look at the Seahawks from a trajectory perspective, are you encouraged or discouraged by the team's development over the last couple of years? Encouraged. The Russell Wilson era ended. This is supposed to ruin your team. You're going to be back in the playoffs. That's not fair. <laughs> Don't. Like, look at what happened with the Steelers with Roethlisberger, right? The Steelers, like, Roethlisberger was good, and then he was worse, 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 and they had chances to get off of him. They didn't. They were bad for multiple years because Ben couldn't play at the end of his career. Like, right. He could not play. Just like one step drop, eh, like horrible. 
And then they didn't have any quarterbacks developed behind him. They tried with like Mason Rudolph, Doc Hodges, whatever. And so then they draft Kenny Pickett in the first round. And then Pickett's bags. It turns out a guy who's available at 20 overall isn't actually that good. And now they're stuck with two big years of Pickett. Like they've been in nothing burger for five years because they can't get quarterback right. The Seahawks could have just done Russ is bad. Russ is getting older. Russ isn't the same for years. We're wise enough to get off it. We're bold enough to get off it, right? A lot mm-hmm. of criticism on that. And didn't just get off it. The backup they had in Gino actually could play. They had a starter. They had a starter quarterback in the back pocket. Just think it could be so much worse for Seahawks fans. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely, unequivocally, yes. More impressed with other. More impressed with the team uh, direction. They should be four and thirteen. They should be suffering. They deserve suffering. Teams are supposed <laughs> to go through suffering, and they're not. They're cheating the system. Is that because of Pete Carroll? Yeah, it's because it's because of team direction. It's because of Pete and John, right? Like that's yeah. that that, that it, it, And when a team succeeds, it's quarterback, head coach, general manager, and they, they, they right. made a change of quarterback. So those guys, the other two guys. Man, that's good shit, man. That's really good shit, Ben. I appreciate you so much for coming in, man. The work that you do is excellent. I'm a huge fan. It means a lot that you took the time. Of course, no, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, dude. Yeah, you bet. Last thing. Those listening who want to get more of what they heard from you over the last hour, where can they find you? Yeah, Ringer NFL shows where all the pods are. Play sheets where I do the videos. And then I write on the Ringer. If you just Google Ringer, Ben, you'll get close enough. You'll find it. <laughs> go from there. It's the internet. You can you can figure it out. Ben Solak, Benjamin Solak on Twitter. That's yeah, Benjamin Solak on Twitter. There you go. All right, y'all. That's going to do it for today. As always, you can find Mike and I on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Remember that no K is okay when spelling my name. Mike is on Twitter at, at Mike Barwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can catch full video episodes on our YouTube channel at Cigar Thoughts and find the rest of our socials at CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. Finally, be sure to check out CigarThoughtsNFL.com to get your exclusive Cigar Thoughts cigars or hit me up on Twitter and I'll shoot you the deets. And when you buy those cigars, reach out like many of you have and tell us what you think. Thank you to all of y'all listening for your continued support of this show. You know you've only got so much time for podcasts in your life and it's an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing this show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making this happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends.